0: Devotion to the Word of God is paramount for every Christian. But how does one rightly interpret Scripture? This holy book is sacred. This holy book must be read and understood correctly. You're listening to the Book of Jude.
1: What's up everybody welcome to the book of jude yes we went on vacation yes the family had fun we had we had a great time with friends and also my wife and i celebrated our 20 years of marriage yes 20 years of marriage god has blessed us so much god's has blessed me so much with an amazing wife we uh Got out of town for uh, a day, a couple days, and stayed in a nice hotel, and we ate great food, overpriced. You know, we spent all the money, uh, but, you know, celebrating um, 20 years, 20 years of marriage. It's a great thing. Here's the 20 more. All right, today we are going to be wrapping up Revelation 2. That's right. We're going to be wrapping up Revelation 2. Uh, it might go a little over 40 minutes. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm sorry. But there is there is a lot of information. When I say a lot of information, I'm talking about the Old Testament. John uses the Old Testament a lot in, in the rest of Revelation 2. So bear with me. Take breaks. Press pause. Take notes. Do what you got to do leave come back later i i want you to understand this and get this so man a lot of your uh false eschatology that you've been raised with is going to go by the wayside during this episode i promise you Uh, a lot of the stuff's getting thrown to the side because we're going to inch away we're going to pick away at that that uh, bad theology that we've all grown up with so um. Yeah, well, here we go. Without further ado, let's do this. Revelation 2. So let's start off here. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 9, it speaks of the synagogue of Satan. And if you drop down to verse 13, we change churches to the church of Pergamum, which we talked a little bit about last time with Jezebel. But uh, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. All right, where I'm not going to discuss this because this is the Old Testament in Revelation. Right. This is what the series is called. And I, I know that this is, you know, you probably saw that and you're like, oh, wow, what is the throne of Satan? Well, what it's not is a physical throne like Satan's throne. He's not he's Satan doesn't have a throne among the church of pergamum no one knows what this is but a lot of people have speculation and i'm when i say a lot of people i mean scholars it could be a lot of things temple of augustus uh the an altar the great altar of zeus but specifically about pergamum this was the center of christian persecution calling it the throne of satan or the dominion of satan it uh, kind of makes sense it was a major center of the cult um full of idols city full of idols greco-roman religion a couple notes from a study bible Pergamum possessed the oldest temple in asia minor devoted to emperor worship in my previous uh episode on the seven churches in asia minor I read where Satan's throne is Revelation 2:13, the headquarters of satanic opposition and the Gentile base for false religions. So along the lines, of what we're saying here, on along the on the uh, Acropolis in Pergamum was a huge throne-shaped altar to Zeus. So again, it's metaphorical. Uh, it's it's certainly not uh, literally Satan's throne there in Pergamum, but. Uh, evil, evil empire, however you want to describe it, that's that's what that is. So, so again, I'm just going to leave you with that, uh, and we're going to move forward with what we find in the Old Testament. Revelation 2, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this verse contains several metaphors for eternal life. This is what Dr. Heiser says. Manna was considered the quote-unquote food of angels. Per the biblical story of Exodus 16, it was food from heaven. We'll also read Nehemiah 9.15, Psalm 105.40, John 6.31-33. And John 50 to 51. Back to Heiser. Broadly speaking, manna is a foreshadowing of the meal with God, the messianic banquet that will occur at the consummation of the end of the age. It is also a symbol for Jesus himself, the bread of life. John 6 31 and 35. There is a text named 2nd Baruch, B A R U C H, 2nd Baruch. Second Baruch. And it will happen that when all that which should come to pass in these parts have been accomplished, the Messiah will begin to be revealed and behemoth will reveal itself from its place and Leviathan will come from the sea. The two great monsters, which I created on the fifth day of creation and which I shall have kept until that time, and they will be nourishment for all who are left, the earth will also yield fruits uh, ten thousand fold, and on the vine will be thousand branches, and one branch will produce a thousand clusters, and one cluster will produce a thousand grapes, and one grape will produce a thousand core of, of uh, wine. And those who are hungry will enjoy themselves, and they will moreover see marvels every day. For winds will go out in front of me every morning to bring the fragrance of aromatic fruits um, and clouds at the end of the day to distill the dew of health. And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high and they will eat of it in those years because these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time. And it will happen after these things when the time of the appearance of the anointed one has been fulfilled and he returns with glory. And then all who sleep in hope of him will rise and it will happen at the time of those treasuries will be opened in which the number of the souls of the righteous were kept and they will go out and the multitudes of the souls will appear together in one assemblage of one mind, and the first ones will enjoy themselves and the last ones will not be sad. For they know that the time has come of which it is said it is the end times. Second Baruch 29.1-30 verse 4 This banquet is both eschatological and explicitly messianic directly tied both to the coming of the Anointed One and the end times. So, eating in the Messianic age takes place not on a single occasion, but every day. Hence, the Messianic banquet not only marks the beginning of the eschatological age, but it's a feature of it. So, a couple things to point out from this text. Again, it's not an inspired text. Uh, but man, it has some good, good things in it. So just like we gained some insight from the book of Enoch, uh, we can gain some insight from, uh, this text Baruch, second Baruch specifically. And, um, so what we just read put ties together a couple things. So we have the anointed one and we have the end times. So those were linked together. We have, uh, this, this meal taking place, uh, in the messianic age. So, and it's also not just in the messianic age, but it's, it's not a single occasion. It's, it's every day, right? It's an everyday thing. It's describing this lovely place. And so, obviously, so far we have the anointed one, Jesus the Christ. We have the end times, which is uh, the day where you know, we all say heaven or heaven on earth. Uh, we're getting back to Eden. This is, this is the day that we're all uh, looking forward to as Christians, and we should expect this to be an everyday feeling. I, th- I think the words in there were so poetic at times. It's just, you can just um, almost feel uh, the words here. You can almost feel the description, how, how they use the, the words. And this also reminds us of Egypt, the Exodus, uh, the manna from heaven, the dew, the heavenly dew that brought the manna in the first place. Exodus 16 13 to 14. Even the image of the superabundant wine and enormous clusters of grapes reminds us of the gathering of the grapes in the land of Canaan in in time of Joshua. This is the end of the Exodus, and we'll find this in Numbers 13 21 to 24. And then lastly, the righteous can expect to feed on the flesh of Leviathan and Bohemoth. Now, if you don't already know, this is going to sound kind of crazy. I I could tell you right now, I have never, ever heard any pastor teach this. Not just on a Sunday morning. I have never, ever (laughs) heard a pastor teach this. So it's not clear whether this image is Uh, figurative or hyperbolic, or it's intended as a literal description of the banquet. But either way, it seems to represent the triumph of the righteous over the destructive powers of this world. So this, Dr. Heiser uh, took some information from a book called, if you want to, if you like to read, we want to get some books, Jesus and the Last Supper, and it's by uh, Brant uh, Petrie. So B-R-A-N-T-P-I-T-R-E. That's the author. And so most of that information is from that book. I will tell you that uh, Leviathan and Bohemoth, uh, you will find in the Bible and other books, and we'll go ahead and talk about that now just so you know, but they are figurative. They represent chaos. Leviathan is the chaos of the sea, the waters, the raging sea, Leviathan. Um, that's chaos. And then Bohemoth is the land monster. Again, uh, chaos and, and wilderness and all of these things. Exodus 16, verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And when the Israelites were saying, what is this thing? In verse 15, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Exodus 13, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness uh, you know, they've, they've left Egypt and they're now wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Exodus 16, starting with verse 13, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. Verse 14, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Now, manna... Means, what is it? I don't know if you remember, they, I don't know if it's still even in existence. There was a, I remember as a kid, there was a, a candy bar called a whatchamacallit. That's kind of how I remember what manna means. They they don't know what it is. It's a whatchamacallit. It's, it, what is it? It's manna, What whatever it is. This is the beginning in the Old Testament, the beginning where we see manna. In Nehemiah 9.15, you gave them bread from heaven. Psalm 105, verse 40, they asked, and he brought quail, and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance. And even in John's gospel, uh, he writes in John 6, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here we're getting an an overlap, as we have seen previously in this series. Yes, the hidden manna is uh, from above. It fed the Israelites in the wilderness, but Jesus is now also saying that bread came from my father, and Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. If you drop down to verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Here, we're speaking of eternal life again. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Verse 50, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The manna given to Israel in the wilderness was also said to have been hidden in the high heavens from the beginning of creation. Now that's found. Now that's. Let let me so let's say that's found in Exodus sixteen four and verse fifteen. Now, you might not read that because that part hidden in the highest heavens from the beginning of creation or from the beginning uh, that is in a targum from pseudo Jonathan. That's a um, Jewish literature, uh, but that is from the Aramaic. Exodus 16, 4 and 15. So, a Jewish Targum, it's a translation, it's an Aramaic translation. That's where we find that. The only reason I'm adding this is because of what Beale said earlier. It has an eschatological expectation to it. In a lot of Jewish writings, um, there's a list of Jewish writings where this has some type of expectation of end times. So, now I want to quote uh, G.K. Beale to you, as we use always. The promise of hidden manna is a metaphorical portrayal of the of end time fellowship and identification with Christ, which will be consumed at the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which those refusing to participate in pagan feast will be rewarded with the manna that was also portrayal uh, this is also a portrayal of eschatological expectation in Jewish writings. Remember in the last episode Balaam, Jezebel, those who um, sat down at the pagan feast and and ate the food that was sacrificed to idols. So those who remain righteous and those who refuse that will be invited to and participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this language is found in a Targum and was ultimately to prosper Israel at the quote-unquote end of days. To continue along with This idea, the white stone, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the association of the white with righteousness and direct connection with admission to this banquet is expressed If we jump ahead in Revelation 19, 8 to 9, where the fine linen, the bright and the clean, represents the righteous acts of the saints, which is directly followed by the reference to being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. White is always metaphorical for righteousness.
0: You're listening to the Book of Jude. Connect with us on social media. Search at Book of Tim Jude on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Chaplain Jude posts frequently with additional resources for you to further your study of God and His Word. Feel free to ask questions or leave comments. Remember, prayer requests are always welcome. Search Book of Tim Jude. B-O-O-K-O-F-T-I-M-J-U-D-E. Now, back to the show.
1: Just a little uh, clarification. You might have seen that on the Instagram, Instagram only, IG only. That uh, instead of at Book of Tim Jude, it's just now at Book of Jude, at Book of Jude. And so it's a totally different new page. Just please uh, search for it, look for it, and you know like and follow, just like you've done already. But the the old one is is going to go away and there's the new one is at book of jude i've just been trying to uh get book of jude book of jude everywhere i'm still trying with uh twitter of course but anyway uh, that would be the only correction gonna have to do a re-recording in the future but anyway all right let's get back to our study in this white stone that is given to the righteous, it has a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because scholars are actually divided, because does the wording point to a divine name, like the name of God the Father, or or Jesus the Christ, or the Spirit? I mean, we see all of these. Uh, what name is it a is it a divine name that's written on the stone? Or is it the name of the overcoming Christian to whom the stone is given? So it is. would my name be on it? Would your name be on it? So there's two possible Old Testament points of reference here. One is Isaiah 62.2, speaking of Zion, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And the second point of reference is in the book of Isaiah, again, a few chapters later, chapter 65, verse 15, God is speaking about the enemies of his people. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death but his servants he will call by another name. So David on, remember we referenced him early on in the series, David on A-U-N-E, notes the possibility that John may have been influenced to use the language from a Targum. Again, Aramaic translation. So on notes that in this Targum, a different name is connected with another concept found in Revelation, the second death. And the Lord Yahweh will slay you, with the second death. An says there is an obvious parallel with Revelation 3:12, where the exalted Christ says the name of God, the name of the city of God, and quote "My own new name will be written on the conquering Christian. So let's read it, Revelation 3:12, we're jumping ahead. But here's what he says, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And in Revelation 19:12, where the exalted Christ appears under the imagery of a conquering warrior who has a name inscribed which no one knows but he himself. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself." So jumping over to G.K. Beale's notes on Revelation 3.12, the new name written on the stone confirms further the idea of an end-time supper in which intimate fellowship occurs. So what we see in Revelation 3.12 reveals that the name in Revelation 2.17 is a pregnant reference to, quote, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my, my which is Christ's new name, end quote, which is written on the believer. Dr. Heiser states the importance of these observations is that the language of Revelation points to the New Testament repurposing the name theology, bearing the name of Yahweh, reference to the name, God's own name, to indicate God's very presence among and claim to his people. The Aaronic blessing illustrates the idea of Yahweh's presence and claim upon his people. Remember the the priestly blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord uh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. You see, this is important because later in the book of Revelation, we are going to see the same concept, name theology, reversed for the Antichrist, the name of the beast, Revelation 13:17, Revelation 14:11. The name on their their forehead and their their hand, but it's symbolic. It's saying, Who are you aligning yourself with? Are you aligning yourself with the Antichrist system, the Antichrist person or persons? Or are you aligning yourself with Yahweh? Is his name written on you? Does he have a claim on you? That's what this is about. This isn't about some futuristic thing that's going to happen, and I'm going to get 666 on my hand or on my uh, forehead. And how silly is that if you're a Christian, or just maybe even not a Christian, but know just a little bit about the Bible, or maybe you saw those Left Behind movies or read the Left Behind books, or you know what I mean? Hey, we the government's saying we want to, you know, six 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 needs to be on your forehead. We need to, you know, tattoo it. Well, wait a minute, right, guys? That this literally has nothing to do with. Again, let's let's take a step back. This is to the Church of Pergamum. We are we are trying to connect the dots. John's use of the Old Testament, its name theology, the the name of God, the name of Yahweh. I will put my name upon my people of Israel. I will put my name upon them. Remember the idea. Remember last time we're starting off with do not, do not eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. Do not be a part of that feast. Do not be a part of that supper, that ceremony. That's wrong. That's false prophet. That's Balaam. That's Jezebel. That's evil. And what do we learn about so far? Uh, you're invited to the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. You're invited to uh, Christ's Supper. You're going to get a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows. Your invitation is the white stone. That's how you get in. I'm going to give you this hidden manna, this, this secret manna. I'm going to give you this manna that only comes from above, only comes from the Father. Oh, by the way, I am the bread, I am the bread of life. So if you don't take away anything else, what we have covered last episode in this episode, it's a contrast between eating the food sacrificed to idols being a part of that ritual, being aligning yourselves with false prophets, the throne of Satan, Uh, the world, as we would say, the evil. Um, Well, you're not called righteous, and you're not going to be given a new name. You're not going to be handed a stone. You're not going to be invited to have the manna that was only for Israel. You're not going to be a part of the marriage supper, right? So it's either one or the other. Who are you aligned with? What name do you have on your head? Who's claiming you? So if you don't get anything else, please understand that. That is what, so far, this is what we are being taught by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Revelation and as it pertains to the Old Testament. And dropping down to verse 26 to 29, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and Jesus goes on to say, as myself have received authority from the Father, I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the Old Testament context on several elements in these last few verses is very transparent. John cites Psalm 2, nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them pieces like a potter's vessel. And where ruling the nations with a rod of iron has the messianic king in view, will share his authority with those whose believing loyalty remains until the end. So Jesus is saying, hey, the same authority that was given to me, I'm going to give it to you. He's talking about the righteous conquering Christian uh, at the end of, of this chapter. Now let's talk about the morning star before we wrap up. Star language speaks of divinity or glorification. In Revelation, Jesus himself, the morning star, he is the morning star, and angels are identified with star language to denote their divine, non-earthly nature. Revelation 120, Revelation 22.16, As Daniel says, the righteous will shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. That's Daniel 12, 2 to 3. Our inheritance of the nations with Jesus at the end of days is in a glorified, resurrected, divine state. So not what you see in the mirror. It's saying that uh we're going to be like them like they are now Dr Heiser continues believers are more than God's family being the sons of God also means being members of God's governing rule his council believers have a divinely appointed purpose remember we're trying to we're trying to get back to Eden right so Dr Heiser says Adam and Eve were supposed to make all the world Eden to spread the kingdom rule of God, so that we could enjoy the love of God, our Father. So the morning star phrase takes us back once more to the Old Testament. He's taking us back to this this language, this terminology, uh, of divine beings. We we see this in Job thirty-eight seven. Job thirty-eight seven. The morning stars were singing together, and all of son, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, the morning star language in, Rez, in Revelation 2.28, what we're looking at is obviously messianic. We're speaking of Jesus. It refers to a divine being who would come from Judah. We know this because of two other passages. How do we know a star or a divine being is going to come from the tribe of Judah? Well, Old Testament again, There's so much. Numbers 24, 17, the the prophecy that a star will go out from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. This passage was considered messianic in Judaism, completely apart from the New Testament writers. If you asked a Jew, then they would say, yeah, this is messianic. This is before the New Testament. So uh, in other words, Dr. Heiser states, Literate readers of John's writing would have known the morning star reference was not about literal brightness. It was about the drawing of the returned kingdom of God under its Messiah. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself, refers to his messianic standing with the morning star language. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's in Revelation 22:16 the wording of revelation 2 is is especially powerful when read against this backdrop not only does jesus say that he is the messianic morning star in revelation 22:16 but we when he says i will give him who overcomes the morning star in this verse revelation 2:28 he grants us the authority to rule with him Whew. ladies and gentlemen I'm going to call it for today. That was the end of Revelation 2. That's right. We're moving forward. When we return, it's going to be Revelation 3. And uh, again, if we see some repetitiveness, we're just going to skip right over it. You might have saw that already. Um, But uh, wow, what a lot of information. And man, Revelation chapter 2, a lot of Old Testament references. Wouldn't you agree? So I hope you're taking notes. Uh, please read over them, try to put them in order, So and keep reading Revelation 1 and 2 over and start reading Revelation 3 so when we go over it, you're going to have a better understanding of it. It's going to be second nature for you. You're going to be able to pick out all of these references from the Old Testament. You're going to know your Old Testament better. It's a win-win. Thank you very much for listening to the book of Jude. Be about your father's business as you go out make disciples.